some well-known words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. This is pretty much the message for today. It's awesomely good news. Was blind, but now I see. What is not awesomely good news is your preacher is a little under the weather today. So if I present this good news with an occasional cough or a bout of sneezes or funny noises going into the microphone, I apologize to you in advance. I'm very enthusiastic for the good news, however. Uh, It should be clear to us, should it not, that God's perspective on reality is much bigger than ours. We do not see everything he sees. Even humanly speaking, it's hard for us to get into the shoes of other people and see the world and this life even like another little human being, much less God. I mean, if our American political process has illustrated nothing else in the last year, it has illustrated this, has it not? We look at the world in wildly different ways. Generationally speaking, this is also true. If you're over the age of 40, just sit down with a 12-year-old and talk about what interests them. You'll very soon recognize there are some very large knowledge gaps and blind spots in your view of reality. Similarly, if you are a kid, sit down with a grandpa or grandma sometime and just ask them about what life was like in the old days and you'll realize, my goodness, the world has changed. Mark Twain put it this way. He said about his own father, when I was 18 years old, it was incredible what an idiot my old man was. But by the time I had turned 21, it was amazing how much the old man had learned. (laughs) Just this wonderful way of saying, as we get older, we get a little more empathetic and understanding of what we don't know. Today's sermon is largely about what we don't know. It's going to be a retelling of a gospel story from John chapter 9, the healing of a man born blind. Father Richard Rohr points out that this type of miracle, the restoration of sight, is the most common of Jesus' miracles. Why would that be? I think maybe because the restoration of physical sight is maybe the most fitting sign and symbol of what Jesus came to do to restore spiritual vision to the human race who is lost and in the dark without him. The bad news for us is that we are lost and in the dark. The good news is that you are not alone there. We are all there together and somebody good is coming for us. Along these lines of seeing, I have, I have wondered from time to time why it is that when we pray, we typically close our eyes. There is no verse in the Bible that says, people, when you pray to God, close your eyes. I mean, I've looked for it. It's, it's not there. I think there's something deep inside of us, instinctual, that knows in order to give our complete and exclusive attention to a a mysterious and often invisible God, we need to close our eyes and shut out all distractions so we can focus. For sure that. 
But I think it also helps remind us when we close our eyes in prayer that without God, that without Jesus, we are just in the dark. So we close our eyes so that through prayer, he might help us to see. If you recognize this about yourself already today, you are in good company. So the story in John 9 begins in the city of Jerusalem. Jesus and his 12 disciples are walking through the city and they come across this man who is begging, who has been born blind. The disciples try to connect some dots that are not there, which is evidenced by a very misplaced question. They say to their rabbi, to Jesus, Lord, who sinned? that this guy has to suffer by being blind. Did he sin or did his parents sin? This is not an awesome question, okay? And Jesus does not even address it. Jesus' response is this. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Notice how that is an answer, a very rabbinical answer. And then Jesus, in answering, does this. He spits, gets down on the ground, and with his saliva and the dirt of Jerusalem, makes some mud. And then with that mud, he puts it over this man's eyes, which have never seen, and he tells him, go and wash your face at the local pool. And this man does. And after he washes for the first time, He can see. Now, I like to think that when this guy's eyes were healed, I mean, he went decades never seeing. I like to think that when Jesus restored his vision, it was like 2010. Like the best, the best vision on the market. So in this first scene, again, the disciples do not see reality. They've been walking with Jesus for a while now, but they basically are wondering, when there's trouble in the world, whose fault is it that this stuff happens? And Jesus' response is, here I am. I'm here. We're going to notice through this story that any number of the characters are struggling with a blind spot. In sympathy for all of them, I'm going to invite us at each juncture to close our eyes for a minute, and I'll offer a short prayer. So if you would, let's close our eyes. Oh God, like the original 12 disciples, so often we miss what's right in front of our face. Forgive us when we connect to the dots that aren't there to make life simpler for ourselves. Forgive us when we just ask the wrong questions or just blurt things out because it seems to make sense in our little brains. Help us trust that you are here and present and that you see how everything fits together, even if it is a mystery to us. Oh, Lord, help us see. In the next part of the story, the newly healed 2010 seeing man encounters his friends and his neighbors and they don't quite know what to make of him they're used to seeing him blind and begging and now that he's standing up and seeing they're not even sure that they can physically 
recognize him. It kind of looks like him, they say to one another, but it can't be him. They don't have a category for this, so they can't even recognize that it's him. So the former blind man describes what happened. He just sticks to this very simple story. The man named Jesus made mud. He put it on my eyes, told me to go to the pool. So I went and washed and received my sight. It's a pretty solid testimony. It sounds so simple, but these good neighbors, I mean, they're good neighbors like you are, like we are, great neighbors. These good people like us are so stuck in the way that things typically go that they can't even see him for who he now is. Does this not happen to us all the time? We get so stuck in the ruts of the stuff that is right around us that we might miss the God sighting that is unfolding and blooming right in front of our life. I read a devotional this week by a college student at uh, Goshen College in Indiana, and she was describing the scene. She's surrounded by her pile of homework. You know, she's writing a paper. Her phone is on with her notes. Her laptop is propped open as she's typing. There's music streaming on her iPad. She's like, I'm worrying about writing this paper. I'm worrying about the job I need to find this summer and the start of my professional life is just all overwhelming. And then... God whispered to me. And as the sun was setting on this rainy, damp day, he got me to go out and walk on a path. And as I walked down this path, it was like I could put down these blinders that were keeping me seeing only this tiny part of my life, these technological binoculars. And I took a deep breath and I could recognize again that God was guiding me and he wasn't going to let me go. Pretty awesome. Maybe you're a suburban parent and you go to the same job every day or you drive your kids to the same school every day. I mean, you've, we just burn ruts into these suburban roads, right? The same practices, the same routines, the same restaurant on Wednesday evening. And we run the danger, what is going to wake us up And allow us to see the amazing thing that God might be doing right in front of us just because we're convinced that it's just the same, just the same, just the same. Could it be that God is doing something amazing? Will you close your eyes with me again for a moment? Oh God. Forgive us when our mental ruts and even our good routines get in the way of seeing that you are present right in front of our faces. Open our eyes so that we can recognize your good, near presence and power that is always just a whisper away. Lord, teach us to see. The next folks on the scene are the Pharisees. They're the pastors of that day, the religious leaders. I have a soft spot in my heart for them. In the case of this healing, which happened on a Saturday, 
the Jewish Sabbath day, this posed a peculiar challenge for these pastors. You see, in their mind, anything that resembled work or action on the Sabbath day was inherently wrong. They stood on a 1,000-year tradition dating all the way back to Moses that we were supposed to rest, and there were a lot of good and appropriate ways to do this on the Sabbath day. So if this rabbi Jesus worked and made mud and made this guy go walk to the pool and did all this action on the Sabbath, it must be wrong. This seems small-minded and stubborn to us, right? But again, they're on 1,000 years of good tradition. I mean, imagine a Republican being excited about Obamacare. (laughs) It's probably not going to happen. Imagine an Illinois Democrat enthusiastic about slashing state programs and pension funds. Like, it's not going to happen a Pharisee is not going to have room in his mind, like that door has already been closed. No work on the Sabbath. What Jesus did does not fit inside their preconceived walls of reality, so they can't see Jesus. They need new glasses, they need a bigger reality. I remember. Uh, vividly, the day I was sitting in a middle school science class. I was sitting next to a friend of mine named Billy Crooks. Great name. He went on to be a sports newscaster on local news. Billy Crooks, reporting the sports. We were making fun of each other like middle school boys does. I was picking on him because he had these huge, ungainly glasses. So he was like, well, you put them on see how you look. So I put his glasses on, and I realized how much information was on the chalkboard in the front of the science class. It was incredible. It was dumbfounding to me how much the teacher had put on the chalkboard. I realized I had a major problem at this point. I did not report home to my mother immediately after school. It took me like a few days or weeks to like come to grips with this. But eventually I said to her, Mom, I think we need to go to the eye doctor because I can't see very well at school. So we went to the eye doctor got my first pair of glasses. As we were driving home from the eye doctor, I wasn't excited about having glasses, but I was so excited seeing every leaf on the tree. You know, like every twiglet on every tree. I was excited to go play baseball and like be able to catch fly balls in left field and see the ball come off the bat again. Like once I put those glasses on, oh, the joy of being able to see. It was kind of humiliating, the first few steps of putting those glasses on, of telling my mom, of going to the doctor, of putting these things on that I didn't want to wear, but the joy of being able to see. Spiritually speaking, this is what Jesus wanted to do for those pastors 2,000 years ago. He wanted to give them a new set of lenses on life. And this is what Jesus wants to do for you. If you've been following him for two weeks, there is more to life than you are currently seeing. If you have been walking with the Lord for 75 years, Jesus wants to expand your vision of what life with him, of what the church, of what the kingdom is all about. There are not enough days in all eternity 
for us to get our eyes and imaginations wrapped around the beauty of the Lord. It's kind of humbling and humiliating to say this. I only see a tiny part of the picture. But if you are willing to admit that, that puts your feet on the road with Jesus. The blind man's parents are the next characters that come into this story. I feel very sorry for them. They're just regular people. I think blue-collar people, they've struggled to raise a special-needs son in a world that had no place for that. And they're hauled in front of the Pharisees. And now this is an official meeting. And the official questions start coming to them. And it's like they're an average citizen who all of a sudden has been hauled in front of a live TV camera and there's a reporter asking them questions about things of which they have no idea and they know they are swimming in water way too cold and deep than what they can tolerate and they are just scared and fearful. They don't know what the answer is, if there's an answer, and all they can blurt out is, ask our son. He's a grown-up. I mean, this is kind of a lousy parent thing to do. Ask our son who's been blind for his entire life. He's old enough. But they are so scared. They're so anxious. This seems to be their best option. And haven't some of us, aren't some of us, right there in this life where something makes us so anxious, so fearful, about what might be coming next, about what tomorrow might hold, that all we can see is the red of danger. Have you been there? This is not a good place to be spiritually. I think Jesus understands this. And for this blind man's parents, he would want to perform the same miracle of helping them see that there is more than just the fear, than just what might be coming. Will you close your eyes again in sympathy for these nervous parents? Oh God, forgive us when our awareness of our smallness or weakness makes us so scared and worried about how things are going to turn out that we are just paralyzed. God, help us trust you that even in our severe worry. You see the big picture of how it fits all together. And even in our sickness and grief and weakness, you are holding us in your hands. Lord, help us to see that. And now that everyone's blindness has been exposed the man's physical blindness, the blindness of the 12 disciples, the blindness of the Pharisees, the blindness of the man's parents. I'm going to read to you the rest of the story from John chapter 9. After interviewing the parents a second time, the Pharisees summoned the man who had been blind. Here's their tactic. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man Jesus is a sinner. And the formerly blind man replied, "Uh, Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know. I was blind, 
but now I see. This is the most awesome thing for this guy to say. Like, he may have been physically blind, but he sees that trouble is coming for him, and he sticks to his story. He knows these pastors are looking to drill him to the wall, and instead he just gives them a dose of the truth and then twists the knife of the truth a little bit. Like, I want to cheer this guy and say, yeah, brother, (laughs) keep going at it. And then they asked him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I've told you already, and you didn't listen. Do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? I think he's dripping with sarcasm at this point. (laughs) And then, then the lights come on for the Pharisees. They hurled insults at him and said, You, you are this fellow's disciple. We are the disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. No more Mr. Nice Pastors here. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And to this they replied, You were steeped in sin at your birth. How dare you lecture us? And then they threw him out of the synagogue. The sharper the picture gets of of who Jesus is, the more compelling this guy's testimony is as it gets refined and repeated. Oh, I want to say amen, but the more the religious leaders mm, can't see it, refuse to see it, and hate it. And finally... They throw this man out of the synagogue, this man who is the living, breathing evidence of God's healing power in their midst. They can't stand him, so they throw him out. Like, God forbid we could get to this point as a church where the living, breathing evidence of God's presence in our midst is like, yeah, we don't do it that way. You better go someplace else. God forbid. There are not many times in the Gospels where Jesus goes to seek someone out. It is always that crowds are coming to Jesus. The sick are coming to Jesus. Like Jesus is getting tidal waved by people all the time. In this case, Jesus goes out to find this man. Jesus heard that they had driven him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the now seeing man answered, And who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, You have seen him. And the one speaking with you is he. How awesome would it be that after not seeing on the day that you opened your eyes, the first face that you put 
your 2010 vision on was Jesus himself. Isn't that cool? Like that day is coming for all of us, not on this side of the curtain, on the other side of the curtain. I mean, when our eyes are really opened, the first face. And this man, when he connects the right dots between Jesus of Nazareth and the Messiah, he says, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him on the spot. This is a great scene. I mean, when we use the verb worship, I mean, I play music. Oftentimes when we say worship, it means like we got a band together and we sang or we showed up on Sunday morning. That is not what happened here. I mean, dude did not take out a guitar and start singing Jesus songs. Like, that would have been great too, but that's not what happened. What the Bible is saying is that he recognized the presence of God. He recognized the Son of God right in front of him. And in doing so, he worships. Like, that is what worship is. It's not singing the songs. It's not saying the words. Worship is recognizing the presence of God that holds you, no matter where you are, and recognizing that Jesus is the Son of God. That is worship. If there's music, so much the better. Jesus then brings the story to the close. He puts a very fine point on it. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment. What? Didn't Jesus say, don't judge? Isn't Jesus supposed to be nice? Jesus said, I have come into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see. And so that those who do see may become blind. Now, some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, be good Pharisees, surely we are not blind, are we? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say, we can see, your sin remains. Jesus teaches this terrible difficult truth. Those who admit their blindness or their weakness or their sickness, if I can put it that way, get to see. Those who admit their weakness are healed. Those who are convinced they can see, those who are convinced they already have their lives put together and stubbornly refuse to admit their need will not be able to see anything new. When you came into church this morning, did you come into this building thinking, you know what, I so need to be here because I am a blind, weak, needy, sick human being. Some of us did. That's a good way to come into church, by the way, according to this story. Sometimes we come into church thinking, am I all put together? I mean, not just physically, but just like the image that I'm projecting to everyone this Sunday morning. Do I appear to be put together? When I was a child, one of my abiding memories, I think I got one here. 
I would walk in the front door of a church into a lobby, and my mom would pull out a comb, and she would drag it across my head, because I was always a mess, still am, and then my brother, she would give us a look like, don't screw up now, your hair's just been combed, and then we would be ready for church. Now, life in its own way illustrated to my mom a million times that we were not all put together. But that was part of the message I got as a kid, that coming to church, we had to at least look like we were put together. That is not a good spiritual posture, my friends. If that's the old-fashioned danger, here's the new-fashioned way. It's the resume way. The person that we put on our resume is a version of our best self, right? We don't talk about our weaknesses. We don't talk about our shortcomings. We don't talk about our foibles on our resumes. I hope you don't. I wouldn't advise you to. But the way we currently live life, especially in the digital world, we are constantly putting out a resume of our life. I mean, the version of you that exists on the Facebook is not the real you. The version of you that is a compilation of your last 100 photos that you have posted in whatever medium you do that, whether you're snapping or Instagramming, like, that is not the real you. I don't think. Because, like, the me that shows up there, I look horrible in 95% of pictures. And the ones that show up on my wife's feed, like, generally we look pretty good. If we live our whole life trying to manage our profile and image so that only the best of ourselves is presented to the world, if we expend all our time and energy and creativity and put some heart into that, we run the profound danger of never being honest of where we truly stand in reality and with God And if we are only putting our best self out there, our best self doesn't need grace. It doesn't need help. It doesn't need healing. So the receptors for grace are closed off. Jesus might be standing right in front of us, but we'd be like, hey, thank you very much. I look pretty good. God would have us live our life in a way that our grace receptors are wide open. It's a humiliating way to live. I need a little help. I'm stuck. I'm lonely. I don't have my stuff together. So I'm a little under the weather. Just last night, I didn't realize I was doing this at the time. I said to my wife, would you make some eggs for breakfast? She's a nurse at Hinsdale Hospital. She started work at 6.30 this morning. We're both up at five. And her response was not, I'm going to be up a half hour before you. You're such a lazy husband. Make your own breakfast. I'm going to be taking care of people for the next 14 hours. That is not what she said. But mysteriously, because she loves me, she smiled at me and was like, totally. I'll make eggs in the morning. So she got up early made some eggs, had a bleary-eyed conversation with her at 5.30, and then she went to work at Hinsdale Hospital. Like, this is how grace works. 
And this is just humanly speaking. But if you confess some need, I need some breakfast because I'm so sorry. I can't even make myself breakfast. If you confess some need to someone who loves you, they will be like, I'm with you. I've got that. I'm there for you. Like this is what friends and people who genuinely love each other do. Like if we do that for each other, humanly speaking, how much more will the love of God come to us when we lay our weakness and sorrow and grief and frailty before him and say, oh God, don't give me a good image, just meet me in my weakness. That is a prayer that God will answer for you. And that is a prayer that God will send his hands and feet, believers all around you, to help answer if you live with that kind of openness and needfulness for grace. That's why the church exists in the world, for crying out loud. If you are lonely today, if you are sad today, if you are depressed today, if you are hurting today, welcome to the club. We are just a bunch of blind folks who need the healing power of Jesus Christ. Amen. Will you pray with me? Oh Lord, I am blind. Open my eyes to see you more clearly, to love you more dearly, and to follow you more nearly. In Jesus' name, may it be. Amen.